Hey friends, and welcome to episode 182 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart sits down to discuss the text for the 26th Sunday after Pentecost. If you'd like to take a look at the lectionary that we're using for these discussions, you can find a link down there in the show notes. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by these observations on these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Brian Motes. Uh, and we're discussing the readings for the 20th, 26th Sunday after Pentecost in the year 2018. That's November 18th. And the readings for this coming Sunday are Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3, Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 25, and the first part of the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, verses 1 through 13. And uh, let me plunge right into the Old Testament reading from Daniel 12. This is the final chapter of Daniel's prophecy. And it begins with a reference to Michael the great prince and uh, talks about a time of distress and then a time of resurrection. And one of the disputed points in this passage is the significance of that resurrection in verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And um, the question has, uh, is raised whether this is a uh, an Old Testament reference to the final resurrection, or if it's something else. Uh, if it's a reference to the final resurrection, many will argue that this is one of the few uh, explicit references to a final resurrection of the body in the Old Testament. At the limit, you'll find people who uh, deny that the Old Testament taught um, resurrection of the body, except in a very indirect or few scattered places, and this would be one of the places where that's found. Uh, I think the the belief in the resurrection, I think, is really rooted in the whole of Scripture. I don't think it's something that's new in Daniel. It's not something that's new in the uh, in the New Testament. There's a various threads that indicate this, I think. You could say uh, right from the beginning when Adam is created and he's put into a deep sleep, and then he comes out of his deep sleep and he now has been transformed from Adam alone to Adam and Eve, man now made as male and female, that's a kind of death and uh, resurrection, a kind of death and glorification that uh, happens before sin in Genesis 2. We have the stories, story of Abraham and the uh, uh, story of Abraham and Sarah who you know, go for many years without having a child. The Lord promises a, a son in Abraham and Sarah's old age. You have dead Abraham with his old body. You have Sarah whose womb has been barren, but together they produce a, a child, Isaac. Just in the last couple of days I've been looking at the uh, terminology of, of sexual activity in the book of Genesis. I'm preaching on the seventh commandment in a couple of weeks, and I was curious to find, I was a little surprised to find that the word adultery never appears in Genesis. Um, the first time it's, it appears is at Sinai when the Lord gives a commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the first time the verb appears anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. So you have plenty of sexual activity in the in the book of Genesis, and a lot of it is illicit, but the word adultery is never used. You know, looking at the passages that talk about barren women giving birth, and it's interesting that uh, invariably in those cases, uh, you don't have uh, any male mediator, any male uh, participant in the birth. Adam knows his wife Eve, and she conceives and uh, gives birth. 
uh, Judah lies with Tamar, and Tamar conceives a child and gives birth. But when Sarah conceives, it doesn't say anything about Abraham lying with her, going into her, knowing her. It just says the Lord took note of Sarah or remembered Sarah, and she conceived. The same thing happens with Rebecca. The same thing happens with Rachel. In each case, when there's this opening of the barren womb, the Lord's action is direct to bring life out of a dead womb. So I think those are all indications of a belief in the power of God to give life, the power of God to give life from, from, from dead bodies that um, is woven into the whole patriarchal narrative. So the idea of resurrection is not new. Uh, N.T. Wright has pointed out also, just to wind up this point, N.T. Wright has pointed out that the, the hope for resurrection, again, is kind of woven into Israel's hope for her future. Her future, she expects, will be one in which um, all Israel is regathered, all Israel is brought together in the presence of God, all Israel celebrates. And the fact that somebody died before that, ha- that event happened shouldn't exclude them from the joy of that final uh, feast in the presence of God. So the fact that Israel expects to be restored to God's presence, and they're in exile and they expect to be restored to the land, for example, that includes the hope that they won't be the only ones, the living won't be the only ones uh, to regather, but the dead will also gather along with them. Well, that's all uh, kind of a long-winded way to make the point, but um, um, I think it's an important point because many doubt that the Old Testament teaches resurrection. I think the Old Testament teaches resurrection in a number of, a number of ways, a number of respects, uh, pretty much from the beginning, and it's really part of the basic story of Israel. But that still doesn't answer the question of Daniel 12. So even if we can say that there's a belief in a final resurrection, a future resurrection, a bodily resurrection elsewhere in the Old Testament, that doesn't tell us what Daniel 12.2 means. That when it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those, these to everlasting life, but the others to, and ever, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That could be a final resurrection. It could be talking about some kind of spiritual resurrection. Uh, I think given the context, it's probably best to take it as a national resurrection, something along, uh, along the same lines as, as Ezekiel 37. Uh, one of the reasons for saying that is that it's uh, chap- uh, verse 2 uh, of Daniel 12 is immediately followed, uh, paradoxically enough, by verse 3. Uh, this happens a lot in the Bible. Verses two, the second verse of a, of a chapter is often followed by the third verse of the chapter. In fact, it's invariable, I would say. But what happens in the third verse is that those who have insight will shine brightly like the sun, like the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So uh, the resurrection is followed by people having insight and uh, shining in the, in the, in the sky, uh, people leading others to righteousness and being rewarded with glory for leading others to righteousness. So the resurrection doesn't bring in, doesn't, uh, this is not a resurrection at the end of history, as it were. Um, it's rather a resurrection in the midst of history. Uh, and um, it's a, talking, I think, about the, the resurrection of Israel that takes place in the ministry of Jesus, uh, the ministry of Jesus considered as a whole, the ministry of Jesus, the work of the Spirit in the early church, uh, including, I think, the, the apostolic generation and the end of, end of uh, the Old Covenant with the destruction of Jerusalem. That whole period is a period of death and resurrection for Israel. And the new Israel that arises from the dust is the one that has insight and will shine like stars as they lead many to righteousness. Another, one, another link we can make within Daniel is that uh, 
those who sleep in the dust are actually following in the footsteps of Daniel, as it were. Daniel himself has fallen to the ground in several occasions, on several occasions in the course of the book, uh, usually when he's confronted by some person, confronted by some news, some disaster that the Lord is predicting. Daniel himself falls to the ground and then rises up again. And uh, chapter 12 is saying that there are uh, some who will die, Israel will die and rise again just as the prophet has. I mentioned the destruction of Jerusalem as, I, as I, we often do on this podcast, and that is the topic of the gospel reading in uh, chapter 13 of Mark's gospel. The first 13 verses for this week are the beginning of the Olivet Discourse that occupies the chapter. Uh, it's, a, it's a crucial uh, sermon in every one of the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the Olivet Discourse at some length. And in some ways, it's, it's, a, it's the climax of Jesus' teaching. It's interesting in Matthew that after, after Jesus uh, delivers the Olivet Discourse, then it said, He finished all His words. Mark, Matthew uses that phrase, He finished this discourse, He finished His words at the end of each, each of the great discourses in Matthew. But at the end of the Olivet Discourse, it said He finished all His words. And after that, Jesus really doesn't talk much in the Gospel of Matthew. He doesn't talk much at his uh, trials. He says a few words from the cross. He gives the disciples the Great Commission. But Jesus basically goes silent after the Olivet Discourse. This is the climax of his teaching ministry. And it's a doom, it's a judgment pronounced over the temple. Uh, the Olivet Discourse is frequently read as a prophecy of the end of the world, uh, the uh, final consummation of all things, the end of human history. That doesn't fit the context at all. Uh, when uh, uh, the, uh, Mark 13 begins with a question or a, a comment from the disciples, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus answers do, you, answers, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Clearly he's talking about the destruction of the temple. That fits with the previous context that we looked at last week where Jesus is in the temple watching this widow put her last two coins into the temple treasury. He's condemned the temple authorities. And then he says the temple is going to be torn down. And the question that the disciples ask in the following verses is a response to that claim. Jesus says there will not, one, there will not be one stone upon another. The disciples ask, when will these things take place? What things are they talking about? Clearly, they're talking about the judgment that Jesus has just spoken of. What will be the sign that these things are be about to be fulfilled? Again, they're talking about the destruction of the temple, not about the end of the world. And then Jesus goes on to give a lengthy description of events that are going to happen prior to the destruction of the temple, the triggering events of the destruction of the temple, uh, the signs that are going to come that will show that the temple is about to be overwhelmed. Uh, a lot of people, I think, misread this chapter, uh, this, uh, these discourses in the, in the synoptics, and take certain things as signs of the end that Jesus explicitly says are not signs of the end. Wars and rumors of wars. I often hear people say that. Well, there's wars and rumors of wars. That means that Jesus is about to come back. There's a war in Syria, and there's a war in Ukraine, and there's a war, you know, there's wars everywhere. There's a war in Afghanistan. Okay. Uh, wars and rumors of wars. Therefore, it's about the end. But Jesus says, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Do not be frightened. These things must take place. But that is not yet the end. So even within the context that Jesus gives, which is about the temple in the first century, even within that context, wars and rumors of wars are not a sign that the end is about to happen. 
nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines. Jesus says these are merely the beginning of birth pangs. That's a little bit closer to the birth, uh, but it's not, it's not the birth and it's not the end. Uh, so many of the things that people take as signs of the uh, imminence of Jesus' return, uh, Jesus says are actually not signs of his return, uh, imminence of his return. Um, the thing that is the trigger is actually outside our, our reading for this week. Uh, verse 14 says, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him who is on the rooftop not go down or enter into it, nor go near anything in his house, and so on. So the, the thing that alerts the disciples to the, the trigger that's going to lead them to flee the city, the trigger that shows that the destruction of the city is imminent, is the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. Jim Jordan has pointed out uh, frequently that that phrase, abomination of desolation, is an abomination, an abominable act, or an abominable person, that brings desolation. It's a, an abomination that causes desolation. Desolation means the destruction of the temple, the uh, turning of the garden into a desert. That's desolation. And the temple is going to be desolated because of an abomination that is uh, performed in it. And Jim has also pointed out that abominations are specifically uh, Jewish wrongs. Uh, uh, when, when the uh, Old Testament uses the, the term abomination, it's talking about something that the Jews commit in their land, something that pollutes the land and causes the land to become sick and expel the inhabitants. The things that do that in the Old Testament are sexual sin, innocent blood, and idolatry. When those things are committed, then the land becomes sick and spews out its inhabitants. Those are the abominations that lead to desolation. Uh, and those are the kind of things that Jesus has in mind here. There's going to be innocent bloodshed, the persecution of Christians. There's going to be idolatry as the uh, the chief priests and the leaders of the temple resist the final revelation of God in Jesus and uh, go go off on their on their own way. There's going to be, uh, as Revelation depicts, there's a kind of sexual sin in the harlotry of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem's lust for other gods and other lords. And particularly, as uh, the Gospels show, in Jerusalem's adherence to uh, Rome and their desire to have Caesar as their king. So, it's, it's that cluster of things that, and I think when, uh, when Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation, I think he's talking about the persecution of, um, the, the killing of, uh, the, uh, uh, of the early Christians. It's the intensification of that persecution, and it's the blood that the harlot drinks that brings the harlot, uh, makes the harlot fall. So that's, um, uh, that's, that's a disputed interpretation of that phrase, but it, uh, whatever it is, it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, not about the end of the world uh, and not uh, something that's still in our future. Jesus is talking about an event that took place uh, in the first century. And that event that took place in the first century is part of the transition from the old to new. And that's what Hebrews is talking about. Our text in Hebrews is Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 25. Uh, and again, the writer to the Hebrews is contrasting the old covenant and the new, showing the superiority of the new covenant to the old uh, there's a the, Jesus is a superior priest. Unlike the priests of old, he can offer one sacrifice that finishes everything. He doesn't have to keep standing to offer sacrifices. He doesn't have to stand to serve. He offers himself once, and then he sits. A sitting priest is a priest who's entering the Sabbath. It's a priest who's offered the final sacrifice. It's a priest who's brought in the new covenant. And because of that, 
as I alluded to last week when we looked at the previous chapter of Hebrews. Because of that, we have access now to that heavenly holy place. Um, the hope for access to the heavenly sanctuary is not something that uh, we have to wait for. It's not that we die and then we can go into the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, Paul says that we have a way, a new and living way, through the veil. That's Hebrews 10.20. And because of that, because we have a new way, and because we have a great high priest, we can draw near in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with water. I think that's a baptismal reference. Baptism is the, the uh, right that qualifies us to enter into the presence of God as priests. Uh, and then uh, the writer goes on immediately to talk about assembling together and not forsaking the assembling together. When is it that we enter into the presence of God in the most holy place? When is it that we draw near with a true heart? Uh, it's when we gather together and assemble and encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good works. It's when we, um, when we uh, assemble as the church uh, in the presence of God. That's the, that is the entry into the veil. That's the uh, new covenant form of approach to God. Let me just uh, end with a, with a quick application. I think that what Hebrews implies says something about the form of Christian architecture, the church architecture. Uh, there's a number of Christian traditions that I think can reflect a kind of old, old covenant sensibility and old covenant pattern by putting up various kinds of barriers between uh, the, the, the Lord's table particularly and the people. And so uh, you'll have a, an altar rail in churches. You'll have an, a kind of stasis that uh, divides the uh, church into the region that's uh, a heavenly region beyond the people and the, the place where the people are. Uh, those, those indicate a kind of Old Covenant sensibility where there's a, there are still barriers of approach. Hebrews, I think, is saying the opposite that we now have no barriers, and then when we gather in the presence of God and assemble together, we are assembling in the most holy place. The treasures of God that were hidden in the Ark of the Covenant are now openly displayed. The Word is fully given to us. Uh, the Lord gives us the manna from heaven, Jesus Christ. The Lord has installed gifts uh, to, to lead us, the, the uh, rod of Aaron. The treasures that were inside the, the Ark of the Covenant are now openly displayed. They're not hidden away they're not behind in the kind of stasis. They're not blo we're not blocked in any way from that. There's still an order in the church. There's still an order of leadership. There's still leaders and followers, pastors and sheep, and so on. Those kinds of structures and hierarchies still exist within the church, but it's not a hierarchy of priesthood, and it's not a hierarchy of holiness. Uh, we are gathering in the most holy place in the presence of God whenever we gather as a, as a worshiping community assembling together with our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.